one, two, three. Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that generates biography by making our guests choose just three songs that connect them to their lives and their memories, and then listening to those songs with them in the moment. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is John Siddons. We came across John a while back when he was visiting the station. Turns out John used to be all things considered host here at WGCU when the station was first built on the Florida Gulf Coast University campus. That's when what used to be WSFP turned into WGCU. got to talking and Richard and I gave each other a look that meant we knew John was eventually going to join us in studio. John was born in Switzerland but lived most of his early life in the UK. He got his degree in French language and literature from University of Grenoble in France. He served in the Royal Marine Force Voluntary Service from 1958 to 1961. After that he embarked on a career journey that's filled with fascinating tidbits that we're sure to explore today, lots of which he spent in the Middle East. At one point his bio says he quote, introduced the king of Saudi Arabia to the concept of high-value thematic gifts, end quote. That was in the mid-70s. He says he was later responsible for equipping a number of palaces in the Middle East with banqueting items of glass, china, silver, and gold. His business dealings in that part of the world came crashing down when the Gulf War began in 1990, and that's pretty much where we're going to begin. Hey there, John. How you doing? Hey. It's good to see you again. Thank you very much for inviting me. So one of the things that says in your bio there at the end is that in the early days of export to the Middle East, every activity had to be commenced and finalized in often rather novel ways. Can you give us an example of what one of those novel ways oh, may have been? My word, I tell you, this really is very accurate. Um, some of the ways that we had to do this were quite extraordinary. In those early days, trading in the Middle East was usually done as a result of the old boy network. Now, I was an old boy, you might put it that way, and the only way that you could do any kind of business out there, particularly in the royal families or with the ministries, was to be incredibly patient. I mean, I have one example of that, if I may put it. Sure, absolutely. when the king of Saudi Arabia, whose name then, King Malik Khalid, when he was uh, just about to go to England to have his hip replaced, I used to spend hours, literally hours. One On one occasion, it was three days waiting in the palace in Riyadh in the area which is called the Majlis, which is a sort of basically a gathering room for people who want to speak to the boss. Mm -hmm. And I stayed there for three days, I guess about six hours a day. I finally got an interview. Gosh, it was extraordinary. The Ministry of Protocol, Said uh, Said Ahmed Walid, I think his name was, uh, he... Uh, invited me in. He pushed me through to the area where the king was. I never shook his hands. I spoke to him, but he never talked to me. And as a result of that, I got the most extraordinary amount of business from them, all kinds of silver and gold things, all of which um, we designed and we prepared in our business in central London. Hmm. And I would uh, then take all of this out. And at the end of, I guess I did that for about three years, at the end of all of that, I used to get paid. Now, this is the most weird thing. You were never paid with um, a letter of credit or anything of this nature. They paid you in cash. (laughs) I used to carry the most numerous uh, reals around with me in my briefcase. And um, I was to, uh, on this one occasion, I think it was around about, uh, in total, about $400,000 in reals, uh, which was a boatload of paper. I took (laughs) it down to the central bank in Riyadh, and um, they gave me Pound notes. 
I mean, thousands of the damn yeah, things. Yeah, it yeah. really was incredible. And uh, they were all wrapped in um, – it was a pink plastic wrapper. And I used to haul all that back to back to London. Just in your briefcase? Just in my briefcase. Mm. Now, in those days, of course, um, there was no problems at the airports. They knew me because I'd been going backwards and forwards for months on end. You were a regular. I was a regular. Everything had to go through what was called merchandise and baggage. Um, and they opened it up and, oh, you got some more cash, Mr. Siddons. And um, that's the truth. That's exactly what I did. Well, we'll get back to the Middle East a little later down the road. But for now, let's go back a little bit in time to you studied French language and literature. What yeah. was your track in your head when you were doing that? Oh, well, this is easy for me because I was introduced to working abroad very early on when I was in my 20s, I guess. My father was the instigator of this, because he spent most of his working life uh, abroad. And we used to have um, all kinds of uh, nationals coming into our home for coffee. For what did he do? He was with he was with uh, Unilever. Does that mean anything to you? Uh, well, soap? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, got it. Soap. And um, in, in the 50s, he became one of their directors, and he was a director until he retired. He only had one job in his entire life, and that was with Lever Brothers. Well, um, all this, I guess I was predetermined. I knew that I would be working abroad. And when I think of my very first um, visit to the, uh, abroad was, of all places, Libya. Can you imagine that? Hmm. What year would that have been? Uh, that was in 69, okay. 1969. But that doesn't really answer your question. The French, French. part. The yes. French part just enthused me. Hmm. I got French. It was pretty simple. And I also learned how to ski. Hmm. Um, uh, that's about the only thing. I can really say I've forgotten most of my French now, but uh, it'll take me three months to get it back huh. back together. So, what was the musical background of your childhood uh, when you were growing up? What was uh, the foundation? Opera. Ah. Opera was my big thing, and I was introduced to that by again my parents. My mother was fairly musical. She, by the way, was an American. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. She was born in New Orleans. Um, and uh, my mother and father got married in Poland. So, you know, already, uh, I mean, I lived in Brussels, I lived in Switzerland, lived all all sorts of places, and I knew that I would be going down that route in my adult life. Mm -hmm. um, so um, opera was it, and in fact, I think our first song is um, a super piece. It was a a piece that I bought. Um, I was very young. I was um, perhaps 10 or 11. I okay. can't remember. And uh, it was Madame Butterfly. I just, I still cannot forget it. It was immensely important to me. Do you know how you first would have heard it? No, I really don't. It was probably on the radio mm -hmm. because um, I can't remember that particular uh, feature. But we did... Uh, Listen to really quite a lot of uh, opera things, or I did. Privately. Were your parents listening to opera? No. Nope. So that's something you found on your own as a kid. I did indeed. What was it about opera that did it for you? I think it was the amazing knowledge that a voice is perhaps the greatest of all instruments. And when you listen to folk like Maria Callas singing, uh, or what is that lovely New Zealander called? Kuri Kawana, I think her name is. Uh, absolutely superb voices, singing all kinds of opera. That switched me on. It really did. I love opera. Uh, it, it developed into other things later on, into orchestral pieces. But um, that's for later on in this conversation. All right. Um, why did you pick this one in particular? Because it was my first one. I bought it. It was Walked a into a record store? That's right. I was just plain young. 
It was a 45. Do people know what 45s are? Yeah, it's people who listen to this podcast do. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it, was, it was a 45 and I had a Bang & Olufsen. Do they have Bang & Olufsen I still? I don't know that That was term. a brand. It was a turntable. Oh, OK. It was a Swedish company. And I used to turn this up so loud in our fairly big home and it used to bother everybody. But mm. I played it over and over again. What was the culture like around you? Did people think you were a weirdo for this? Or was this sort of like, yeah, it was that mm. time in the world and it was in the UK and so opera was a thing no. that you might have chosen? I think I, I was a little bit of a weirdo. Okay. <laughs> I really do. Because when I went on to uh, what's called in England public school, which is basically high school, Right. Those are the ages. Um, uh, I was introduced to much more sort of a Catholic uh, supply of lovely, lovely classical music. Gotcha. But I love classical music. I really do. Okay. Well, let's listen to it. This is uh, Madame Butterfly. It's performed by Maria Kala. Yes. Is that I how think you pronounce it, was, it? Yes, absolutely. And, and it's Puccini? Yes. I'm yes. not really an opera yeah. guy, so I'm kind of faking it here. Yeah. But let's listen to it together, and then uh, we'll talk a little more. Okay. Have you had a chance to see much opera live over the course of your life? Yes, in in London. I've never seen it in, in this country, which is a shame. I don't think it comes uh, to this part of the world very frequently, hmm. if ever. I mean, I'm sure I'm wrong. Have you seen Madame Butterfly? Yeah. In, you know, I saw that um, in London. Do you remember the first time you got to see opera live as a kid once you'd found it, you know, through the 45 and the radio? I would think, yes, I can probably put a, a pretty – proper date on that. I would think it was about 50, 1954. Okay. Hmm. And um, I saw a lot of ballet as well. Hmm. My parents were very good about this. My mother was quite musical. She used to bash the piano. I was going to say, so there was music being played around you some? Yeah, some somewhat. My father was, I think, um, uh, a bit blind in the in that area. Okay. <laughs> he was too busy. He was abroad most of the time. Right, right. Hmm. But uh, when I went to Harrow School, which is um, the high school that I was mentioning, I was introduced to it in big time. But not necessarily the classical stuff. This uh, Harrow School, which was founded way, way back in 1571, I Yeah, think I Googled it, and it's got a pretty deep roots. <laughs> oh, it's got some <laughs> unbelievable roots. Yeah. But it has school songs. I think it's mm -hmm. about the only uh, public school that has a huge number of songs. And one of those songs we'll, uh, we'll hear later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but um, the words normally, the, the lyrics in these songs are – absolutely directed at boys and what their future life is kind to of inspirational be. songs. That's right. Very inspirational. Hmm. You know, when was the last time you had listened to that Madame Butterfly? Because it was clearly moving you. You oh. were clearly, um, uh, you know, soaring with it and sinking into it. Mm. Uh, do you listen to it often? No. I would say that's the first time in 10 years. Wow. Might even be twenty years, hmm. but it does bring back colossal memories. Does it put you back in the room you would have been in playing yeah. it when you were a kid? That's right. Uh, there was there is a, um, an opera situation in England called Glyndebourne. I'm not quite sure if probably a number of your listeners would know of Glyndebourne Opera House, but every year for at least six years we used to go down there, and it's in Sussex. And um, listen to all kinds of music, all kinds. Um, uh, ballet was important to me as well. A Firebird by Stravinsky. There's, uh, what was it, Swan Lake. Mm -hmm. I used to watch, I can remember now, watching Margot Fontaine mm -hmm. uh, dancing. But those were super days. In fact, I wish that I had spent more time, but I was abroad for six months of the year, starting yeah. in 69. Did you ever have a chance to see music when you were abroad? It seems like yes. you were in some, some interesting places. Yeah. You probably came across some interesting opportunities, if nothing else. Indeed. There, there was uh, – in Egypt, I used to listen to 
a singer whose name is Umm al-Kalthoun, and she had uh, an extraordinary voice. They're Egyptian folk songs. Mm. When I used to go to Portugal as well, there is a, um, uh, a folk type of music called uh, Frado, I think it is, or Fado, and that is very moving, lovely, quiet, moving, inspirational music. Um, but elsewhere, not really. Uh, in Turkey, I used to go to um, concerts, but there, that music I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. I was not good in Arabic. I can sort of do sort of sentences, but I couldn't follow anything else. Hmm. Really so as much time you spent there, you didn't have to know Arabic in order no. to, to get, get along? French was essential hmm. because I used to go to Beirut in the Lebanon uh, before it was destroyed. And uh, French did turn out to be pretty useful. It was actually useful in odd places like Bahrain. I mean, hmm. but English was the lingua franca. Everybody right. had to speak English. The other thing that was uh, curious, I was given in one of the companies I worked for, I was given a calculator, okay. an early calculator made by the firm Sinclair. Okay. And um, it, if I did not have that piece of equipment, I would not have been able to do the kind of business I did hmm. because I was able to calculate. Everything they did in calculations was done with an abacus. Wow. And, of course, I don't know how to use an abacus. Right, right. Click, click, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. sliding those beads everywhere. Uh, they used to write the numbers down. I used to punch it into my Sinclair. Your fancy and I, it was gadgets. a fancy. Yeah, it yeah, really was. I'm sure. Yeah, but, um, um, you mentioned before we started recording uh, something about heredity. What, 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 what is that? Um, bring that notion into this conversation in a way that it can help frame some things. Right. My great grandfather uh, was a German. Oh. He emigrated in 1847 to New Orleans. He brought his family. He had a whole bunch of kids. He died within two months of arriving in New Orleans. Yellow fever got him. Hmm. Well, his, one of his sons, uh, John Jacob Wax, was their family name. He went to war. He was a Confederate soldier. Hmm. He joined the Confederacy in 1861. He got himself shot three occasions, and he lost a leg at Gettysburg. I have all the papers. Wow. And he finally became the mayor of Baton Rouge huh. in uh, 1889 or something like that. That so, was your grandfather? Yeah, no, that was my great grandfather. That was your great grandfather. My grand, one of his children is my grandmother. Uh huh. And uh, she married, obviously, she was American yeah, by yeah, this yeah. time, and she married an American, and they went off to Poland to do their business with Standard Oil. And um, it's quite interesting, I think. She was totally, that's my grandmother, was totally unmusical. I can just hear in my mind, I wonder what kind of Confederate battle hymn there was. Was there one? I presume there was something. I guess there was. There certainly was a Republic one. Right. Um, but uh, there, there was no music uh, inculcated with, with that family. Gotcha. I think anything musical was really started by me or... Um, you know, in those early days when I was growing up and before going to public school. So you weren't coming from a, a lineage of music uh, at all. Not at all. Some interesting uh, paths yeah. that all came yeah. together there for you in London. Yeah. Um, how did you – how is it decided where you go to public school? How, is, how, were, how did you wind up there? Very easily. My grandfather on my father's side, his – my father's father – he was a schoolmaster, and he um, went to this school, Harrow, as a schoolmaster in 1899. And he was there for teaching for 43 years. He was at it all this time, and he sent his children, his boy children there, 
And I followed. Um, I followed. I was there in 1952. You were a, a legacy? Is that what they call it? No, it's just – it's a tradition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the families follow the father and right. the father follows the grandfather. Right. What was school like there? What was that? Oh, it was fantastic. Yeah. I absolutely – What years would this have been? 1952 to 57 okay. I was there. And uh, it was the happiest schooling I've ever had. Hmm. And you learned an awful lot. You really did. Uh, a tremendous amount of stuff you learned. And uh, music came into it big time, as I said earlier. <coughs> you know, um, music was most important. And on one occasion, I was uh, the understudy for singing a song to Winston Churchill. Really? Yes. That was an exciting period. I was very young. So you were a singer? I guess, did everybody there sing? Was yeah. that part of being there? Yeah, everybody had to. Right. You, you used to sing all these school songs. And of course, uh, in the, uh, when you're young, you have a, a treble voice. I had a treble voice. And there is one, <coughs> there's one particular song in our repertoire called 500 Faces, which is 500 Faces of the Boys at this boarding school. Um, which is sung to Churchill. And I can remember so clearly Churchill sitting up there on the, on the stage and he was crying. As we used to say, he was blubbing. He was weeping because he was an old boy of the school and he loved Harrow School. He really did. And uh, I followed his career with great interest. <coughs> We have to stop for a second. I inhaled some coffee. Okay, I'm fine. So, you said he was blubbing. Yeah. He was blubbing. He was crying. He was sitting there crouched up with his enormous white handkerchief and dabbing his eyes. Uh, he spoke. I can't even remember what he said. Hmm. But uh, we all had to trail back after the school songs, and I can see him now sitting comfortably in the headmaster's house, and like a f fool, I didn't get his signature. <laughs> I wish I had. But I followed his career, and I did a, really quite a lot of research, and um, I, one of these things that uh, I'm amused by, can you ask me that question? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, Winston, you're drunk, disgustingly drunk. And Winston retorted, Bessie, my dear, you're ugly, disgustingly ugly, but tomorrow I shall be sober and you'll still be ugly. <laughs> now, these are the sort of things that Winston Churchill said, short, sharp, wonderful words. And all of this, and here's another one. I mean, we've all heard the never in the field of human conflict has so much been owed by so many to so few. That was in 1940, the Battle of Britain. And um, I'm, I'm amused by this one. After the victory in North Africa at Alamein in November 42, Winston said this, the Germans have received back again that measure of fire and steel they have so often meted out to others. Now, this is not the end. It's not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Mm. You know, lovely things like this. The Lord Privy Seal, who is uh, the authenticator of official documents in, okay. in government of England, Winston was on the loo. He was, <laughs> he was on the loo, the throne as we call it. And he always used the lavatory, locked the door as his thinking time. And one day the Lord Privy Seal interrupted him while he was on the throne and he hollered through the door, tell him I can only deal with one <laughs> at a time. <laughs> now, he, he was an extraordinary man. He made wonderful speeches and they helped the, the enthusiasm, let's call it, of, for the British people during the war. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I can remember going to his funeral 
thousands of people trapezing across London for that. There's one little one here. It was quoted, I think it was about 1946, while Winston was in Washington, D.C., actually it was actually during the World War II, uh, he sat at a reception, all I can say is that I have taken more out of alcohol than alcohol has taken out of me, hmm. because he was a Pretty heavy drinker. Right. I think that's, we all that's know That's what that. I had at least yeah. understood. Yeah. He was a great brandy guy and he smoked these cigars. He must have smoked thousands a year hmm. because wherever he went, uh, you know, they gave him a cigar. What did it feel like to be in his presence that, for that short time? I can remember being incredibly nervous hmm. because he had this growling voice way down in his boots and um, – I, he may well have been slightly drunk. Who right. knows? Right, right, right. Uh, even when I was a kid. But I didn't take it terribly seriously. I take it seriously today yeah, because yeah. I missed an opportunity of, you know, probably talking to him. Yeah. Well, let's move to your second song. It's, uh, we've, we've framed the, uh, the setting, mm -hmm. the time, and the place. What is the song? The song is the Harrow School song. It's 40 years on. I love this uh, song because the words are so perfect. Um, if I may, after you, you play your short bit of it, yes. could I possibly read the fourth verse? Sure, absolutely. Okay, well, let's listen to it. This is uh, 40 Years On, uh, performed in this case by the Gentleman of Harrow. Now that was recorded most, you know, recently enough that it was recorded on like a camcorder. How much is it different from what you remember hearing, or what is that extra verse? Or explain no, the differences. The actually they did it very well. Um, it was properly recorded, I guess. There was a certain amount of clicking in the background. Yeah, yeah, it was filmed but from the audience, probably. But the fourth verse, which in fact they um, were singing. Uh, it's quite difficult to follow the words, but the first two lines of it, or the first four lines, are quite interesting because it's 60 years on for me. Right. But here were the words, 40 years on, growing older and older, shorter in wind as in memory long, feeble of foot and rheumatic of shoulder. What will it help you that once you were strong? Hmm. You know, it's good words. And uh, I've remembered these. I've got the book here in front yeah, of I me. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, yeah. That, what is that? Can I hold it for a yeah, second? Yeah, sure. So this is the school songbook, yeah. Arrow School Songbook. And they were making these books all the way back to, I guess, when they invented the printing press. Roughly. <laughs> Roughly. I mean, this is a very old book. Yeah, yeah. This actually belonged to my grandfather. Oh, wow. So that, that is a really old book. So that was probably 18 or let's say 1900 just to – it's a very old book. When was the last time you had listened to that song? Oh, uh, I would think yeah, a couple of years ago because I go back when, when okay. my wife and I So you're still back. involved with oh, this? Yes. The, oh. I mean my cousin was the governor of the school. Oh, wow. I mean okay. you know, we've, you know, we have very close ties to Harrow. And it's still there doing, oh, doing yeah. what it's doing That's uh, right. indefinitely into the future? And what's more, it's a far better school. Yeah. Far better school than I was in the 50s. Is it about the same size and in the same place? It's about 100 uh, students more. Yes, about 100. Same place. It's been in the same place since 15, well, 16. I think they built the school room. I think it was in 1602. But the school itself, which was a free school back in 1571, um, uh, was small. It only had about 40 or 50 hmm. uh, students. But now it has 700. You guys deal on a whole different time frame than we do over here. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a wonderful school. If you want a really good education, 
that is the place to go. Is it still an all-boys school? All-boys. Hmm. Now, man, it has been. So where does music fit into your life these days? Do you listen to oh, much yes. music, and how do you listen to it? Well, the kind of music I listen to in the old days, I used to listen to, guess what? It was WGCU, right? the, the classic uh, station. And um, the sort of music I loved back then and still to this day, you know, things like Rossini's William Tell mm-hmm. Overture, Beethoven's Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, and Eighth. I mean, all of these. And they were regularly played mm-hmm. here in the U.S. Wagner's The Ride of the Valkyries. And then uh, the famous um, Bolero uh, which by Ravel, which I used to love. Did you ever see that uh, skating? Um, uh, the two English people back in the 80s, they won the gold medal for dancing. I probably would have seen it. I would have followed the Olympics back in the 80s. Yeah. And well, they won it using that as gotcha. their music. It's absolutely splendid. All the Vivaldi seasons. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, that's delicious music. What 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 means do you use to listen to this now that WGCU is not playing it at night? Right, it's tapes of old um, cassette tapes. Yeah, I haven't got. Um, you I haven't, haven't gotten to like any of the online streaming things because nope. there's a whole. F- as there's a whole world of that for you just to click well, away. <laughs> I, I have in the last uh, couple of months because right. of your kind invitation, ah. I have been streaming stuff this way. But I like to listen to music with earphones uh-huh. and frankly turn, the, turn it up a bit. Uh-huh. And um, that's, that's the way it goes with me. By the way, I enjoy some American music. Well, I was going to ask. It's something. We did rock and roll. Where were you when rock and roll happened? And did, did, it, did it make a dent in your opera? <laughs> oh, it did. <laughs> okay. I mean, I love the Beatles. Can I tell you a story about sure, the Beatles? Sure, absolutely. I was invited by the manager of a cinema in Liverpool to come to a Beatles concert. I loved it if you could hear them singing properly because it was so noisy with screams. Gotcha. But I did. I listened to it. The following following the morning, the manager of this cinema where the concert was being held, um, he said, John, come over. I think you ought to come and see what's happened to my cinema. I went over. And as I walked through into the auditorium, through the seats, the outstanding thing was it was dark, it was empty, but it stunk. Stunk, stunk. stunk like what? Urine. Oh. I can remember People him. were too busy rocking out to the Beatles to go find a bathroom? Absolutely. <laughs> it was a disgusting. And he said the front two uh, rows of seats in this cinema were completely destroyed and he had to replace the whole blessed lot. Huh. That's but a little trivia, Beatles trivia I'd never heard. <laughs> it was absolutely accurate. But uh, Gershwin, that's another popular uh, person for me. Rhapsody in Blue, I get all blue listening to that. Mm. American in Paris, all this super stuff. That, um, uh, so, yes, I have a rather Catholic view of music. Uh, the Beatles were very important, I must admit, because that was a time when, you know, you really got to know what a girl was. I mean, you you, you met a lot of girls at um, parties and they used to uh, have this music on really loud. It was wonderful. Hmm. How did the Middle East enter your life? I mean, you knew you were going to be abroad, but why Why there? Why there? Because when my in my very first job, um, the... Uh, managing director of the company, who was in fact an old Herovian, he um, said to me, would you like to join our small export department? I said, oh, wonderful. Yes, I'm looking forward to this. And within about six months, he sent me out to the Middle East. That was it. I didn't, he didn't send you me had to- no- Preparation, you just no. kind of went and figured it out? I did. What was the Middle, Light, Middle East like yeah. at that point in time? Oh, dear. That was sort of the Wild West? It was the Wild West. I went to Libya first and then off to Dubai 
Dubai. I used to go to Dubai years later, very, very frequently. I haven't been since its enormous development today. Right, because, yeah, now we picture Dubai and it's sort of like, like a Star Trek country. Absolutely yeah. like that. But in those days, there was just this creek. It was a stretch of water that went straight into the desert. And um, you used to get across the creek, which was, what, 200 yards wide, 300 yards wide, by boat, by paddle boat. You used to row across. The whole place has changed completely, and it's changed properly and well. But I've got to tell you about one little story Absolutely. in Dubai. Sure. One of my customers was an ice cream manufacturer. Okay. He was making ice cream called Eskimo ice cream, very appropriate. In, du in Dubai. In Dubai. Okay. My company used to provide him with the waxed paper cups for his ice cream. And I, uh, I got a couple of major contracts out of him for this. At the end of one of my deals with him, he said, um, John, I want to give you a gift. I said, look, I'm terribly sorry, Abdul Razak. I can't take a gift. He said, you are going to get a gift from me. I don't care what your bosses say. You're going to get a gift. And he opened a drawer in his desk and he drove his hand down into the bottom and he pulled up and he said, open your hands. I opened my hands and he dumped watches just watch faces, not the straps, watches. Okay. I said, what are all? He said, take them. They're all gold. They're all lovely. And I said, oh, you can't do this. He said, do it. Put it in your briefcase now. Do you know, he says, what I do for a business? Yes. I said, you run and own this factory. He said, oh, no. I was just about to say, is the ice cream business paying off? <laughs> He was, and he admitted this to me. He said, I'm a smuggler. Ah. My big business is soap. I said, what kind of soap? Procter & Gamble palm olive soap. Huh. He would import tons of soap and smuggle it off to Iran. Gotcha. And that was his business. So um, that was – I kind of enjoyed that little story. Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. you say, hey, my dad was in soap? <laughs> yeah, I did in fact say that, yeah. <laughs> oh, OK. Uh, well, let's move on to your third song. Lovely. What are we going to hear? Well, it's the New World Symphony by Vorjak. I did this because I was introduced to a new world mm -hmm. through the Middle East and – obviously, here in the United States. I've lived in the United States since 1992, mm -hmm. December. And you're a citizen now, right? I became a citizen in 94 because my father discovered that in amongst his papers, there was a birth certificate, um, an American. It was produced and signed in Basel, Switzerland, where I was living. So I had, and I didn't know this, I had the opportunity many years beforehand oh, I to see. be an American citizen. Cool. I became an American citizen in three months. You were able to just go straight through. Went straight through. Mm. I was given one bit of advice. Do not, under any circumstances, talk. They will recognize that you are a Brit. And they'll say, what do you mean you're a Brit? You know, just push the paper underneath the window there. And smile and nod. Smile and <laughs> nod and here's $50. Hmm. I got my citizenship in three months. Hmm. So back to the story with this song. You said just because it's uh... – Yes, it is the new world. Right. And I love this piece. This, believe it or not, was the second uh, record – in those days, on vinyl, it was a 33 and a third disc. Uh -huh. It was my second thing that I bought as a child. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. I can't remember who was playing it at Same the time. record store? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably. But I played that, and I've been playing that for years. Hmm. I think it's, it's just perfect. It was, I think, composed in 1894 in this country for this country by Vorjak. He had a job here for about six or seven years. And he 
pulled out of uh, American folk music, particularly Negro music. This was what he loved. And, of course, some of those songs today I love still, some of the black, beautiful um, songs that, they, uh, that, that are still sung. Mm. That's folk song. Anyway, yes, uh, that was an important um, piece of music for me. Turn on your DJ for a second and set this song up. It is the uh, wonderful New World Symphony. I think it was E minor, Opus 92, I think it is. But um, it's a wonderful piece of music, particularly the, the first movement. Go for it. How does that make you feel? Excited. Yeah? Yeah. That is what music should sound like when you are in a bad mood and you want to be picked up and given some encouragement. That is an amazing piece of music. I just love it. And I quite often play it. Did you have the ability to take music with you when you were on your travels? That's a good question. Yes. Um, I... Uh, had a, a tiny Grundig machine which had um, space for a, a, a tape. And I did, yes. On one occasion, I had it all taken away from me. That I'll never forget that. That was in Bahrain, and I complained viciously about Taken that. away because they suspected you were using it for something that they didn't want you to use That's it right. for? Or was it just because it was music? No. They, I was going to be recording voices, and, of course, I had to play part of it, part of it and they, all, they gave it back to me. Hmm. What was the most culture shock you ever experienced while you were in Yes, in, in Saudi Arabia particularly. Saudi Arabia uh, was very, very uh, strict and dominating. And anything that you – if you broke the rule, they threw the book at you. Can I tell you a story about that? Which sure. Is, um, yeah, go right ahead. Uh, on one occasion, I was flying back from the Sultanate uh, of Oman which, by the way, is a beautiful country. If anybody gets a chance, go to Oman. Uh, the aeroplane um, was in trouble. There was something wrong. And they had to drop down at 2 o'clock in the morning into Jeddah, which is on the west coast on the Red Sea there. Uh, I had in my suitcase, my yes, it was a suitcase, half a bottle of scotch. Now, I had been given that by my agent in Oman. Where it was okay to have a bottle of scotch. Absolutely. Right. They found it. I got into major trouble. I was thrown into jail. Mm. I've actually been to jail. And I was held in that jail for quite a number of hours, actually. And when they finally realized in the early morning, it was around about 10 o'clock in the morning the following day, they realized that this really, it wasn't being smuggled in because of, you know, I was going to sell it or something. They uh, deliberately gave me a trolley, a cart, mm -hmm. a luggage cart, and they put this half bottle of scotch, Johnny Walker, black label. I said, oh, dear me. And I had to push this through the Jeddah airport and I had to go through um, various uh, lounges to make sure that people saw what was going on. Um, you know, they all looked at me scowling. Oh, you shouldn't um, be importing. You shouldn't be smuggling that stuff through. And I had to go into a gent's lavatory, and I had to pour this down the drain. I see. They were making an example of oh, you. Oh, a total example. Hmm. And quite right, too, because... Uh, you know, that's the rule. Those are the laws. You don't bust these laws, do you? You mm -hmm. mustn't. But that was um, – it could be regarded as quite funny. But at the time, it Probably really Probably felt hurt. very serious. For me, because I was doing so much business in Saudi Arabia 
I could have become a persona non grata easily. Right. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't. How, when was the last time you've been anywhere over there? Uh, you... It was to Qatar. Qatar, when I first went to Qatar, it was just a pile of sand. There was nothing. It was a, It is now the richest nation on the planet. It is the richest nation in the world. Mm. Uh, gas. Mm -hmm. Back in those days, there was nothing discovered. Right. They were exploring, but all the gas is out actually in the Persian Gulf, um, in the Arabian Gulf. Um, Qatar was um, a most weird. That was a place I went to. Uh, I was trying to get some business for their new palace, um, which I didn't get. I was rather disappointed. Have you ever been over there as a tourist? No. Any desire to? Yes. I'd love to take my wife there. Just uh, she came with me on one journey to Abu Dhabi where I nearly drowned her, actually. <laughs> um, you know, we were sailing in the, in the Gulf somewhere off Abu Dhabi and I jibed and she went in and her jacket, her life jacket came off. Oh, it was a real mess. But that was, uh, that was the only time I think that uh, – I took my wife. Oh, we went to Egypt on one occasion. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the pyramids. If anybody goes out there, go out to Giza. Must look at the pyramids. Climb up inside them. Wonderful experience. Hmm. You know, we started by talking about how your, your business enterprise came crashing down when the Gulf War happened. Yeah. So that just pretty much changed the, the face of the Middle East in terms of the stuff you were doing? Oh, absolutely. And then suddenly – no longer the old school network, gone. And the Americans did this for me. I was always, I was a bit angry about that because the American politicians said to all, um, say, Kuwaitis and Saudis, you've got to do business this way. Hmm. Um, and this way was it had to be published worldwide if you wanted to have some golden palm trees, if you wanted to have... You had to open it up to the entire world to make oh, bids yeah. and the whole thing, and That's suddenly right. you were just... A I little, was up. You were a little fish in a huge universe suddenly. Yeah, and they were looking for the cheapest prices. Yeah, right. My prices out of Asprey's, which is the company I was working for, and Garrard's, who were the, um, the crown jewelers at the time, we, we made the most beautiful stuff. We really did. All... I, I'm proud to say I guess I designed pretty well all of it um, in those days. Mm. Did you know I dealt with Mr. Gaddafi? Mm -mm. Oh. I mean, I guess it doesn't surprise me at this point in our conversation. <laughs> but uh, for his – Like face-to-face? Like -face? I saw him. He was in the room sitting on the floor on a carpet leaning up against a cushion. I never actually said hello to him. But I was introduced to him by the chap that I was working with because I was providing him all kinds of unbelievable gifts which he was giving away um, on his uh, – this was his 10th anniversary. Hmm. And uh, I can see him there now sitting um, on the floor. Oh, we made some wonderful stuff for him. Hmm. Thousands of watches and medals, but particularly – solid silver horses and, um, you know, they were only about a foot tall, but they were just beautiful things. Mm. And what's more, he paid. I mean, I never had a bad debt in the Middle East, mm. never. So, um, and last question, um, what would your, you know, 15 or 16-year-old self back at the Harrow School think of, uh, you know, John Sidden's 60 years on sitting here, the life you've lived? I think, I hope that uh, folk... Young folk at Harrow today uh, must realize that that school is basically the beginning of life for them, 12 to 18 years old. It was such a good school, even in my day, but it's better today where you learn many more things. I hope that one day many dozens of those folk who are now 16, 17, 18 years old, will regard the world as their oyster. You can go anywhere today. Be honest. Be patient. That's the important thing. You mustn't break the rules. 
Well, that's a message to them. But how would your you feel about the arc that you went through to get here? You knew you were going to go abroad. Did you have any dreams that you would have lived the life you've lived? No, I did not believe that that could be possible. And coming over to the United States, by the way, why did I come here in the first place? I came here because of the weather. And guess what? The other thing is taxes. <laughs> the taxes in this country are small compared to anything in Europe. And I've loved it ever since. Hmm. Okay, one more last, last question. Uh, are there any songs that you avoid? Any songs that I avoid? Yes, heavy metal. I cannot stand the beat when you drive along the roads of Fort Myers and you hear this thudding noise in a car that might be three away from you. Your windows are throbbing. The mirror that you normally look into, you can't see because it's vibrating. I can't stand that kind of music. And unfortunately, you can't turn it off if it's three cars away. <laughs> All right, John, that's it. Any, t any final thoughts? No. I just am delighted that I, I walked into a studio once again. It reminds me of All Things Considered. All right. Thank you. Thank you. We make this show in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Calligan is the online content producer. Chris Duffus is our executive producer. Our theme song was created by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's parting tune, I'm hearkening back to an episode of this show, number 44 to be exact, with recovering journalist Charlie Whitehead. Charlie's first song brought him back to his childhood in western Kentucky as he put it, hanging out in an old shelled-out building he and his friends called Hotel California, doing what teenagers do in abandoned buildings. But I also chose this song this week because next week's guest, Time Loop, recently covered it at a show. She played at a little church in Fort Myers that I attended, which, because of the nature of this show and song stories, of course brought me right back to Charlie's beat-up old pickup truck. Listening to this song on a cassette in his boombox, sitting next to him, plugged into his cigarette lighter, remembering his childhood in western Kentucky. Uh, we love it when stories escape our podcast and worm their way out into the world. This is Paradise by John Prine off his 1971 self-titled album. Keep listening. All right, this is a brand new song that I wrote at the band center. Next time on Three Song Stories. And he said that I would let go Words that are easier spoken The hour when deals are broken I'm the only one 